Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. Well, the vaccine mandate has been lifted and Kyrie Irving is back. We'll talk about the top four teams in the East being extremely close to one another. Talk about some very surprising performances by a couple of guards in the league. And we'll finish with everybody's favorite segment, Plead Their Case, where you'll ask me a series of questions and I will plead the case of the individual or situation. But to start, the ice-cold Miami Heat are no longer hot. The team has lost the last four games. They've dropped to the second seed now in the East. They continue to get dominated in the fourth. They dealt with an internal spat between Jimmy, Udonis Haslam, and Eric Spolstra. And it just seems like they're crumbling from within. So what is going on? Well, honestly, there's there's a lot of things going on. It's really hard to pick just one thing because there's so many things that are going wrong. But um, I guess the very first thing that jumps out at you is that this team was supposed to be a team whose main identity was on the defensive end of the ball. That's one of the things that they prided themselves on most. And when they were winning ball games, they were consistently holding teams to blow 100 points and really imposing their will on that into the floor. If you look at the last four games that they've played, each, each game they've allowed at least 110 points. So for a team that already um, is prone to have offensive lapses from time to time, this is something that can't happen because defense is the one aspect of the game that you can control. So if you're not doing that part, you're not really giving yourself much of a chance. And then conversely, you have a lot of players that before, which were contributing, are now kind of starting to hit a bit of a wall and positions that before maybe seemed like positions of strength are now looking a little bit shakier. Duncan Robinson had been a little bit of a liability all year long, and I had been a big proponent of trading him for depth on the interior, but it seems Eric Spolstra had been um, pretty much set on trying to force this thing and making it work that he would eventually get out of his slump. But it really doesn't seem like Duncan's going to break 40% of the year. And before it didn't matter because they had guys like PJ Tucker who were leading the league in three point percentage guys like Gabe Vincent, giving you uh, quality three point shooting off the bench. Max Cruz is still doing his part, but in general, some of these other guys like PJ Tucker, Dwayne Dedman, key guys off the bench that before were giving you meaningful minutes are really underperforming for whatever reason. I don't know if Deadman and PJ and maybe some of these other veteran guys are a little bit tired, but um, they're just have been really underwhelming lately. Jimmy Butler, even though on the surface, it seems like his numbers are just fine. If you actually watch the game, it seems like a lot of his offense is coming, I guess, at the expense of certain situations. He will, for example, score the basket in transition whenever he sees that there's an advantage where he can maybe draw a foul, things of that nature. But when he plays teams that are disciplined on defense and when his individual matchup is a guy that he can't successfully body or take into the paint, he becomes almost a non-factor offensively because this season has been his worst shooting season from the outside in his entire career. He has shown a complete inability to knock down three-pointers. And at this point, it's seeming like you can't rely on him on a game in to game out basis to knock down the mid range jumper either. This is a guy who is supposed to be your best player 
and is supposed to be, according to his salary, a franchise player that should be at the very least a top 12 guy in the league. But offensively, he doesn't seem to be a top 12 player, at least not right now. Um, I don't know if it's because he's not imposing as well enough, but if he's not going to be scoring from the perimeter or shooting from the outside, he at least has to attack the basket and get into the paint because right now he's becoming a little bit of a non-factor. And then the other thing that you can really see is that this team is getting beat a lot on the boards. And I think that that's something that we had talked about all year at the beginning of the season. They were doing great rebounding the ball, despite the fact that they were playing with an undersized lineup. I had mentioned that I wasn't really sure how they were doing it because they were really undersized and they were still somehow our rebounding teams. But it seems that now the size differential is starting to play into effect a little bit more because even when they play good defense at the start of a possession, if the other team consistently gets offensive rebounds, that usually leads to a wide open three and a broken play or a layup where a guy was out of position because you weren't expecting them to get the ball back. So securing the, the ball has been a really big problem. And as of late, they haven't really gotten great production out of their backup center and Bam Adebayo having to do all the work on the inside. It's been probably affecting how aggressive he can be on the offensive side of the ball because they ask him to do so much on the other end. So I think all these things are playing into it. So I think that in order for the Heat to turn it around, they're going to need a couple of things. They're going to need, number one, for some of the guys that were knocking down threes before to start hitting them again, because you can't count on Duncan to do it consistently. And if you watch the way that teams have been playing the Heat lately, they are attacking their best three-point shooters to run them off the floor because they know that when they're not on the floor, their spacing isn't very good. So what they're doing is they look at Duncan Robinson. doesn't matter who is defending him. They're going to try to get a pick and roll to get a switch on a Duncan to try to attack him because they know that he's a liability out there. They do it to Hero as well, um, but Hero not quite as susceptible because he can move at least better laterally. Hero is still susceptible to getting bodied by bigger players, but he can at least stay in front of quick guys. Duncan, it seems, can't stay in front of quick guys, and he can't defend stronger guys either. So I really don't know who, who he can defend out there, but um, they're going to need some of these other guys to start making threes because they can't count on Duncan to do it. And they're going to need that to provide the spacing that Jimmy needs and Ben needs to be able to get easy baskets inside because they're not really reliable from the outside. So, and I think that all of that starts probably with the defense because if they can get stops, get the ball rebounded after the first miss, that will stop other teams from being able to gash them so much in transition where their smaller undersized players really don't stand much of a chance so it's, it's a lot of things going on right now. And obviously it's boiling over a little bit when you can see the, the best player on the team fighting with the coach on the sideline um, and season's about to go into the playoffs. It's just strange for it seems to be number one, a couple games out of the playoff. And then for this to be happening now, after they had been playing so well all year without a lot of their best players in the lineup, they finally start getting some of these guys back and now the struggle starts. So um they really do have to figure out what their identity is going to be going into the playoff. Thing that people talk about with teams and defense is always that defense is made up of effort plays and you need to be gritty. And it's all about the effort that you put in on the other end. And it it's a grind at the end of the day. And I think that the whole heat mentality is based off of being 
gritty, making those defensive stops or defensive plays, playing bigger than they actually are at every position, one through five, being able to switch, being able to maintain that tempo throughout the game. And I think they've completely lost their identity on all of those things. If you look at the last couple of games, they continue to collapse in the fourth quarter. Against Brooklyn, they actually outscored them by 13. But against the Knicks, they were outscored by 23 points. The Knicks were able to put up 38 points against them in the quarter. I need to look at the Knicks overall season, but I would get, I would bet that that would be one of the top three, if not the number one quarter that the Knicks played all year. In addition to that, the Warriors outscored them 37 to 24 and their game, aside from that, it's a one point game up until that point. So they have all of these examples of games where they're collapsing in the final moments or the final quarter as a whole. And that to me shows a lack of mental toughness, a lack of uh, like grit or the ability to maintain and keep up with it uh, against Brooklyn. They were outscored in the second quarter, 40 to 21 after only being down by two in the first quarter. So there just seemed to be a lot of poor judgment calls or lapses in their overall state when it comes to the second or fourth quarter, which to me comes down to more of effort plays or being able to defend against these guys in the Brooklyn game, not a single person on the team had over 15 points. Bam Adebayo led the team in scoring with 14 points. That is pathetic. I don't think there was a single NCAA college game in March Madness where the leading scorer did not have more than 15 points on the losing team. So you can't have that happening. Brooklyn is not known to be defensive stalwarts. And on top of that, you mentioned that they, for the season, have been holding teams below 110 points per game. Their last win against a team that scored more than 110 points was San Antonio. But after that, or before that, there has not been a win that they've had where they have allowed a team to go beyond 110 points. So they need to clamp down more on defense. They need to regain their identity. They need to make those effort plays that they've been known to do all season. And it should be better that they have their full lineup and full breadth of players available, not a detriment to the team, which seemingly it has been. Right. And then to your point too, to go off what you mentioned in the fourth quarter, which has been one of their biggest struggles. And it hasn't just been this recent poor play that the fourth quarter has been an issue. If you look at the statistics on the fourth quarter all year, that has not been a good quarter for the Heat. They're actually one of the worst teams in the fourth quarter. It just so happens that they play so well in all the other quarters that they end up winning those games regardless. But they regularly get outscored in the fourth quarter. And I think that another aspect, aside from just the lackluster defense and uh, the lack of aggression on that end, is... When you get on the basketball court, anyone who's played basketball knows that when you step on the court, you have a first instinct as a player. Some people's first instinct will be to stop the other player from achieving their goal. For some people, that first instinct is to get other people set up and help other people achieve their maximum potential. Other people, their first instinct is to put the ball in the basket and score. The Heat don't really have a lot of people whose first instinct is to put the basket or to put the ball in the basket and score. They have Tyler Hero, who's like that, and that's just about it right now in terms of players who are meaningful contributors on offense. So 
it's a big problem because in the fourth quarter, when other teams are clamping down, playing their best defense, the Heat seem to go into this really rigid, stagnant offense where every guy is like, okay, I'm going to set up the offense. Let me set it up. Let me set it up. They, they hand it over side to side a couple of times. They call for a, a pick and roll that gets blown up probably for Duncan Robinson. Um, and the next thing you know, they wind up taking a last minute desperation three with five seconds left in the clock because no one got anything done because everybody was trying to set something up instead of focusing on, hey, who's going to attack and get the ball in the basket? So, And I think that a lot of that is predicated on the fact that when you get down to it in the fourth quarter and defenses are locking in, you really need somebody in your closing lineup to be able to beat their defensive matchup one-on-one off the dribble at the very least. Because if not, you're not going to spring anyone else open. You're not going to force any rotations. You're not going to cause any kind of action that's going to get anyone else an easy look. And then you're going to have to take a contested shot. And it seems that when the Heat play a good defense, Jimmy Butler seemingly can't break down other elite perimeter players off the dribble because he doesn't really have much of a perimeter game right now. So they play him up close. If he's playing a guy like a Tatum or something like that, it seems that he gets neutralized on that end unless he's getting sprung, sprung open in transition or off misdirection. So they need a guy who on a night-to-night basis is going to be able to cause mismatches and force rotations. And so for the Miami Heat, a lot of nights that's Tyler Hero when he's got it going. But the thing with Tyler Hero, and I've said this all year long, is he needs to make tough shots to be successful. He's not going to overpower you physically. He's a guy that is a tough shot maker. He's crafty. But occasionally the tough shots aren't going to go in. I think that if the Heat are going to reach their ceiling and actually win a championship this year, they really, really need Bam Adebayo to change his mentality because he's really the only guy that they have in their lineup that consistently on a game-to-game basis present a matchup problem where he's going to force opposing defenses to alter their rotations or matchups. For example, Bam Adebayo is a guy that on any given night, the guy who's defending him should probably be a guy who will either be slower than him or weaker than him. Very few guys in the league are going to have both a strength and speed advantage on Bam. It should be very simple for Bam Adebayo to at the very least get into the paint, force contact, get to the free throw line, body guys that are bigger than him. You see so many situations where he'll be a couple feet away from the basket with a guy smaller than him and he'll kick it out for a contested jump shot. He needs to force the issue because when teams get forced with the decision of, okay, what do we do with this guy? He keeps beating our guys off the dribble. We're having to foul him a lot. He's starting to catch a lot of offensive rebounds. Our big guys can't stay with him on the perimeter. When you do that, that takes pressure off of other guys like Jimmy Butler and Tyler Hero and your P.J. Tuckers and allows them to get good looks. So I think that they need somebody to be able to beat their matchup one-on-one consistently for this team to go. And if Tyler Hero is not doing it, then it seems no one is. And that guy should be Bam in reality because he's the most gifted one from a talent standpoint and seems to be third fiddle at best on offense, which is really unexplainable to me. Yeah, but how how long is it going to be that every single year, I feel like for the last two years especially, we and everybody who's talked about the Heat has gone, Bam really needs to take on more of an aggressive role. Bam needs to stop deferring. And the same could be said about Jimmy Butler with how he enters the fourth quarter versus when he's in attack mode. But especially for Bam being a young player, like 
Tyler is the only person on that team that seems to have that I don't give a crap mentality and goes and attacks the basket, no matter if he's missed 20 shots and it's they're down five points, three points, 20 points in the fourth quarter. And so to your point, Bam, who knows that he can both guard against all five positions and beat offensively all five positions, never has that like gear in his mind to go, I'm going to take over this game now in the final stretch of the game, even though he could do it. And I don't know how long we'll have to talk about it for it to become reality, but it is disappointing to see night in, night out. Yeah, I mean, he's still a young guy, and he has shown flashes of being able to do it in spurts. But if the team is going to take the next step, in reality, your best player should be your best player. This is the guy that I'm sure that he would probably say has the most value on the team to them even if you don't think he's the best player on the team right now. If that's the case, it's time for him to start realizing that in terms of his role for this team. He's 24 years old. He's still got a long way to go. But there is no reason that Bam Adebayo shouldn't at least be 80% of what Giannis is based on his skill set and what he can do. Julius Randle does more with less. So I think that Bam Adebayo, these next couple games – He's got to be the one to be like, listen, guys, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put everybody in a position where you guys can get better looks so that we're not just relying on having to force three-pointers or try to force contact all the time, taking bad shot attempts. This is the guy that has to be the, the true facilitator of this offense if they're going to win it all this year. So we'll see what happens, either that or Jimmy Butler has to return to what he did in the finals when he was – burning himself out, taking it every play. So I haven't really seen if Jimmy has that gear this year, but um, it remains to be seen. Maybe he'll be reinvigorated by the playoffs. We shall see, but on to a different team from New York. The Brooklyn Nets get back Kyrie Irving. They have him now for all of their home games, except yesterday their home game was spoiled against the Charlotte Hornets where they lost in that game. But let's talk just about Kyrie being back. He is pumped to be back. Kevin Durant is pumped to be back. What do you think him being back for the rest of the home stretch as well as for the playoffs does for the Brooklyn Nets? I think this is huge. It makes it really rough for anyone that has to face them in the opening round. This team, before you were at least counting on 50% of the games, the ones that you're having to play on the road at New York that are the tougher ones for you, that you don't have to deal with Kyrie Irving at the least. Now you add Kyrie Irving to that team, a guy who can potentially go off for 50 points or so on any given game. He had 60 against Magic, followed it up with 43 against the Grizzlies the game after that. He's been averaging 33 points per game in his last 10 games, 50% from three, 53% from the field, 6.7 assists per game. I mean, just think about adding 33 points per game to your lineup and what that can possibly do. And a guy who isn't only adding 33 points per game, but adding the mindset and mentality that you have a closer in important moments, he has shown that he can knock down pressure shots in the playoffs when it matters the most. And now you have two guys that can do that. So imagine for opposing offenses or opposing defenses, how awful it is to have to game plan for Kevin Durant in late game situations in close games and now you throw in Kyrie Irving, a guy who you already have to individually game plan for in his own right in those kinds of situations. It's just a massive headache. So, um, And God knows if they get anything out of Ben Simmons, 
they're not getting anything out of him right now. And they've been playing great since Kyrie's return. So imagine just getting added defense from Ben Simmons. And you have a team that can definitely make a really deep run now. So it seems like they're in a different world from where they were a couple of weeks ago when it seemed like they may even be at risk of falling to the play in tournament and being an early exit. Um, I really don't see this team going out in the first round. So you really hope that for the first seed team that the Nets slide up to number seven. Yeah, well, I to continue on your point, with Kyrie coming back, you get the second leading score on the team at 27 points. You get the second leading assist uh, maker on the team with 5.7 assists per game. And likely if he played the full season would have been the leading assist man. Um, and you get somebody who's going to contribute 36 minutes a game, which takes the load off on the other guys, especially if Steve Nash goes with a smaller lineup for the playoffs. So it's a boon for them in terms of getting him back. In addition to that, he's already come out and said that he wants to re-sign with the Nets and re-up with Kevin Durant. He said, I'm not leaving seven ever in reference to Kevin Durant. And so for a team that was marred with questions about Kyrie all season with the potential to create strife or tension with any other, other players that they have, on the nets with Joe Harris being injured, the trade with James Harden now having Ben Simmons coming in and thinking about a continuity of having players in the court with Ben Simmons at all times. It it's only positive in terms of getting Kyrie back. And so it is huge for them. The thing that I would worry about as a Nets fan or a Brooklyn Nets uh, owner or player is you're sitting at number nine right now in the East and the East is very competitive this year. And you just lost to the, team that's in the eighth spot right now so maybe you beat the hawks but then you have the hornets to play against for that eighth spot what if the hornets catch you again and beat you for that eighth spot so they still do have a little bit of ways now with about seven games to play for the end of the season to make the ascension up into at least the seventh spot potentially getting into the sixth spot but they're definitely sitting in a good place for the next seven games but if i were them i would just worry about we can't be too low on this play-in game and turn it if one team catches us then we could be out without even playing a seven game series yeah i mean i i really don't think that it would happen to them just because i i can't imagine the situation where kevin durant and kyrie irving don't show up for the play-in but i will say the eight nine and ten matchup in the east probably makes for I know we haven't been doing the playing tournament for long but I would imagine this is probably going to be one of the best playing tournament matchups that we'll see for a while with the very exciting and fun to watch Charlotte Hornets at number eight Brooklyn Nets at number nine and then red hot Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks at number 10 so definitely going to be an interesting playing tournament if it's if it uh shakes out that way yeah and it's how the tournament should be played too. You look on the other side of the West and three of the teams have a losing record, which is how the East has been for the last couple of seasons. But with the way that the East is shaping out right now, this makes sense for the play in tournament. Like if the Brooklyn Nets, if the season ended today, if they were not able to be in the playoffs because of the tie with the Charlotte Hornets and the tiebreaker given last night's game, that would be unfortunate. And so this is what the play-in tournament is meant for. You know my feelings on how they should revamp it in the future. Maybe the NBA will listen and listen to us. But 
Moving on to the top parts of the East, the top four teams right now, because of the Miami Heat collapse and because of this rapid ascension by the Boston Celtics from the start of the season until now, the top four seeds are within a half game of one another. In order, it's the Celtics, the Heat, the Bucks, and the 76ers. Based off of recent play and the amount of games that we have left, who do you think ends up on top? And what do you think the ordering is of these teams to close the season? Yeah, it's interesting. It's just a really weird situation in the East because it's just, do you really trust that all of these four teams are even that motivated to take the number one spot? That's the major question. Like, are these teams really going to be fighting for the number one spot as opposed to just resting players and trying to get healthy? Because realistically speaking, if you're looking at it, getting the number one spot this year in the East isn't quite as useful as you would imagine. If you get the Brooklyn Nets at eight, that's a really rough matchup. The Cleveland Cavaliers, I would argue, are still probably a tougher matchup than the Toronto Raptors at number six. So if you get the Cavs at seven, that's still probably a little worse than getting the Raptors at six, in my opinion. So... It really does depend on if these teams are actually going to play all their guys or are they just going to try to get healthy. But assuming that these teams are going to try to win these games, let's just go off of recent play and desire to finish first. I think that you got to give it to the Boston Celtics. I mean, the team has been on fire. They've probably been the best team in the East since the All-Star break. They've been playing so well that they now have the highest differential in the East and the second highest differential overall in the league at 6.8 points per game. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are hitting on all cylinders. They've won nine of their last 10. They've won six in a row. There's only a couple games left. So I would imagine they're probably going to ride this hot streak out a little bit more. They do have an injury to Robert Williams, very important for them defensively, but they still have their most important pieces overall. And I do expect them to finish strong. Um, so I'd probably take them at number one. The Miami Heat, Miami or Milwaukee Bucks, and Philadelphia 76ers are all gimmies. But I think I'd probably go ahead and pick the Miami Heat to finish second. Their schedule isn't too tough. Um, law of averages, if you're just looking at the statistics, the Heat have been playing about as bad as they can possibly play over the last four games going into the playoffs you would imagine that they would be a little bit more motivated than some of these other teams to close out the season to try to figure out what is going on and to have some form of identity and confidence going into the playoff. They also have the second highest differential out of the four teams that we're talking about. And then I'd probably go ahead and pick the Milwaukee Bucks at number three and the 76ers at number four. So I'm I'm basically picking it to finish the exact way that it is right now. Um, I don't expect it to change. I think the 76ers, um, they're probably a little bit more variable, the effort that they're going to give, especially towards the end of the season, knowing that there's not really that much of a difference between four, three, and two. So I think it's going to probably just shake out the way it is. Yeah, so I, I understand your reasoning. And I think for me, the way that I'm looking at it is in terms of strength of schedule and how the season is closing – taking a look at that with also considering the recent play. And so I, I think I agree with you on the Celtics. They, they have done a great job 
uh, up until this point. But as you as you said, they lost the statistical averages over their last uh, 12 games. The Celtics have only lost one game. And the next uh, slate of games for them, the next seven, they're facing Toronto, then Miami, then Indiana, Washington, then Chicago, Milwaukee, Memphis. And so of those games, I think that two of them are gimmies with Indiana and Washington. The other five are going to be very challenging for them. And so I think that Boston has a chance to close out the season pretty poorly and end up taking the third or fourth spot. Uh, I think with the Miami Heat, on the flip side, because they've lost so many games lately and they have a tune-up game now with Sacramento, I think that they have a chance to reclaim or stay within the top two seeds. So I would put them in that one or two spot based off of their schedule. With the Bucks, I think that they're facing the toughest schedule as a whole. They've got Philly, then Brooklyn, then the Clippers, who have been playing well as of late, then Dallas, who's also been playing well as of late, Chicago, Boston, and then they finish with Detroit and Cleveland. So really the only game there that's a gimme is Detroit. So with the Bucks, I would peg them in the bottom portion of that. And then the 76ers, they have the easiest schedule to close. They have Milwaukee, which is going to be difficult tomorrow, but then they have Detroit twice. They have Indiana twice, and then they have Toronto, Cleveland, and Charlotte, which are all bottom teams in the East. And so I think Philly actually ends up with one of the top two spots, Miami having the other spot. And then I would put the uh, Bucks and the Celtics in the three and four spot. So I would say in order, I'm going to go Philly, Miami, Bucks, Celtics. I can understand your reasoning for sure, but I guess um, from the standpoint of these teams, at least they know that the winner is not really going to get that big of a prize. So I'm sure that um, the East, the whole way through from beginning to end is going to be a really great playoff to watch. No boring rounds. Yeah. Who would you want if you were starting this series of all of the teams that are from call it five to six right now. So Bulls, Raptors, Cavs, Hornets, Nets, Hawks, who would you want to face? I would definitely easily want to face the Raptors if it were me. I think that the Raptors of those teams is probably the easiest one to game plan for. I'm, I'm not like taking anything away from them. I think that the Raptors are still going to be even better next year and all that. But I think that one of their most important pieces and some of their most important pieces in general are just younger guys. Like they really do um, really look at Scotty Barnes, guys like Boucher, Achua, who play significant off the bench. These guys all play significant roles and minutes for them. The main guys that they have on their team that are veteran players that you can count on to produce numbers are Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam. And those two guys don't scare me as much as some of the other guys on the other teams that you mentioned. I just think that it would be a little bit easier to game plan and match up for this team. They don't present as much matchup problems as some of the other teams may. And I do think that their youth may make it so that they can be taken advantage of a little easier than some of these other teams. I know that the Cavs obviously are even younger, but I just think that the Cavs overall have a better roster. And I think that they're just a tougher team to match up with, especially given their massive size. There are just certain teams that that's not going to be a good matchup for. But I feel like um, the Raptors are a team not taking anything away from them. They're going to be good. Garrett Trent Jr. Also, I like him a lot, but 
these are all guys that I think are just a couple of years away from making some real noise in the playoffs. So I would, I would pick them. Yeah, I agree with you with the only caveat that Jarrett Allen is still out currently. So if he was out to for that first round of the series with his broken finger, I would probably pick the Cavs because they're not battle tested. They're younger and they would lose their all-star center and some of their size with Jarrett Allen being out. So that's my only caveat. If he's in, then I pick the Raptors. If he's out, then I pick the Cavs. That's fair enough. I think they'll get him back in time. But you're right. He obviously changes the entire complexion of their defense. He's going to be sorely missed if he doesn't make it back in time. Yeah. Well, on to the last segment before plead their case. We have a couple of young guards who are playing exceptionally well this year. Both Jordan Poole of the Warriors and Tyrese Maxey of the 76ers have really elevated their play as of late. They're about the same age, have similar stat lines. Which one do you think has the better odds or the better opportunity to be a better player for their career? Uh, This one is really, really tough. Um, If you're looking at the numbers, you got Tyrese Maxey, who's 6'2", 200 pounds. He's 21 years old, averaging 17 points per game, 4.3 assists, 3.4 rebounds, and he's currently averaging... 48% from the field, 41% from three, 85% from the free throw. Um, He has looked really great this year. But then you look at Jordan Poole, and it's almost the same thing. He is 22 years old, a little bit taller at six foot four, but a little bit lighter at 194, averaging 17.8 points per game, 3.2 rebounds, 3.8 assists. He is shooting 45% from the field, 36% from three. 91% from the free throw, but he has been averaging 25 points per game in his last 10 with some of these other warriors out him taking on a bigger role, elevating to 47% from the field and 41% from three in the last 10. So when you look at both these guys, very similar. I think that the main difference is that Jordan Poole probably presents a little bit more um, of a shooting guard profile in the sense that he's got a little bit more size. He's a little taller. I think that he's probably a little bit more explosive as a player. Um, and I think that probably eventually he's going to end up being the higher ceiling offensive player. Tyrese Maxey, on the other hand, um, I think that he probably is a little bit more of a combo guard. He's definitely a guy that can get his own on offense, but I think that he presents a little bit more natural playmaking ability than Jordan Poole does. And even though he is 6'2", he does have some long arms and nice athleticism, allowing him to, at the very least, be serviceable against some shooting guards. So I think that overall, though, I'll probably take Tyrese Maxey just because of the fact that I think that he's more polished I think that Jordan Poole is a guy that is very streaky. He can get hot. Um, He looks, when he looks great, he looks like he could be better than Tyrese Maxey. But I think that Tyrese Maxey just brings a little bit more to the table in terms of diversity, playmaking, um, the grit and effort on the defensive end. I think he probably is a little bit better at jumping passing lanes and understanding where he needs to be at defensively. Not to say that Jordan Poole is a bad defender. We're really splitting hairs here, but I just think that Tyrese Maxey is a little bit more of a polished player at this point even though he's a little younger. I think the only reason I give this to 
Jordan Poole over Tyrese Maxey is Poole is on a team right now that has Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. And I know Steph has been out, but when Clay was out, he was the de facto guard. When Steph was out or is out, he's the de facto guard in terms of playing that number two or even number one role at times. And so I think that with these guys aging out and the prowess that these guys have from a shooting ability, he has amazing mentorship there with him. Whereas with Maxi, sure, he has James Harden there. We'll see if the 76ers cough up, which is likely another nine-figure extension for James Harden. But he really only has James Harden there to mentor him. Whereas with Jordan Poole, he's in a system with a couple of guys who are some of the most prolific shooters that the league has ever seen. And then will eventually be given the keys as those guys age out. So I think Poole just has a better succession plan in place for him to be successful for his career and better managers, if you will, that will help mentor him. Whereas Tyrese Maxey, I don't think has that same system in place for him to succeed the way that Jordan Poole can. Yeah, I can see that. I think for Maxey, it's really going to be important what happens with Harden. If Maxey's going to reach his full potential, then it's probably going to be without Harden. I can see how Maxey and Embiid together would be a really nice pairing that really complement each other. That could be very successful for years to come. But I think that's going to depend on whether James Harden gets this extension or not. If so, um, then Tyrese Maxey will basically be relegated to just a tertiary option on offense, playing off of James Harden and Joel Embiid. So that decision will play probably a big role on his career progression. I agree. But moving on to the last segment, plead their case. You will ask me a series of questions and I will plead the case of the individual situation. Let's do it. All right. So first up, the Los Angeles Lakers blow a 23-point lead to the Pelicans last night. They drop behind the Pelicans for the 10th seed, plead the Lakers case on why they don't have to worry and they can still make the playoffs. I can't. I can't plead their case because this is the team that they're going to have to play against for that play-in game. And they said it. It's a microcosm of their season. And as I look to this team and you think about all that's been said about them, how they've played, what they've done this season, a lot of people are going to put the blame and shoulder the blame on Russell Westbrook. He has played extremely poor in most games this season. Um, he has been a turnover machine. His PER has been the lowest that it has ever been. And he's been a defensive liability. He has not been the same offensive player, but it's not just a Russ problem. Yesterday, they had LeBron playing 42 minutes when he's playing on a bum ankle, as he would describe it. And so you have a guy who's in his 19th season. He just eclipsed 37,000 points. He should not have the usage percentage or the minutes played that he does this season. It, this starts with Rob Blinka not putting together the proper team and trading away depth for talent with Russell Westbrook. He should have had other guys who together made up a couple of large contracts, not just one large contract, which is what he traded away. And maybe they would have had less of a depth issue. But as you look to Russell Westbrook and you think, man, I think he might be the issue this year. I think people need to take a look at the guy who hasn't been playing for them, which is Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis has not played pretty much at all this season. 
he was trolled yesterday at the Pelicans game where uh, the announcer said, that's all folks, which is what he was quoted as saying during his last game with the Pelicans. But Anthony Davis has played the inverted amount of games this season, as opposed to Russell Westbrook. He's played 37 compared to Russell's 73. So from a pure cost standpoint, Anthony Davis is costing you way more on a per game basis than Russell Westbrook is. So say what you will about Russell Westbrook and what he has done this season, but at least he's actually out there on the floor helping the team in any way that he can, whereas Anthony Davis can't seem to stay on the court and as a result is causing LeBron to play way more minutes than he should and causing this team to lack the depth or the talent that it needs to succeed on a night in night out basis. Yeah, I agree with you. Honestly, at this point, they may not even make the play in tournament. They're only one game in front of the Spurs to get that play in spot. And the Spurs have actually been winning games lately. So by the time that the season's over, they actually may not even make it to the play in tournament whatsoever. So um, I definitely understand where you're coming from, but it's tough. I mean, you got to, for this team, Anthony Davis being out, he is their defensive stalwart. LeBron James having to play the role that he's playing on offense, I guess, is leaving nothing left for him on defense because we regularly see that he never gets back on defense, it seems. And um, the last time that this team held the team under 100 points was February 3rd. This team bleeds points. There is seemingly no one on this team that can defend or cares to defend, especially when you see from the top down that your leaders are constantly not getting back on defense, arguing with refs. Malik Monk came out the other day saying that basically the team culture and environment is one where veterans tell players that it's basically the veterans tell the young players it's all their fault. They don't know what's going on, that they don't know anything, and that the veterans know everything. So it's really tough to be motivated to play in that kind of environment. So it seems that it's just a function from the top down. I wouldn't be surprised at this point to see them not even make the plan. Yeah, I wouldn't either. But again, I think that this comes down to uh, Anthony Davis more than it does Russell Westbrook. I think that it's way more his fault than it is Russell that. Westbrook because you can say what you want about Russ, but he shows up to work every day. And Anthony Davis has not been able to stay on the court. And I know that there are times where injuries are freak accidents and they shouldn't happen. But for a guy who is supposed to be an all-star in this league, he played 36 games last year. He's only played 37 this year, played 62 the year before, 56. So the last season that he played more than about 90% of the games was 2017-2018 season with New Orleans. Since he's been with the Lakers, he has not been able to put together a season where he's played more than 62 games, which is not a great investment in a player, in a star player. So I think that um, it, it's next year uh, going to be a huge red flag if Anthony Davis comes out and is not in good enough shape to stay on the court healthy, saving for a freak accident. So needs to definitely get the, the regiment right and follow whatever it is LeBron's doing because LeBron tweaks his ankle, he sprains his knee, he does it hurts his lower back. He's only out for a couple of weeks, if that. And LeBron has very, been very durable even through his age 36 or 37 season. So let's see what Anthony Davis uh, can do next season. But I think for Lakers fans, if they're going to point any fingers, it's at him rather than Russ. 
AD needs to get LeBron to share the secret sauce. <laughs> Whatever is in his uh, secret bottle from uh, Space Jam 2. <laughs> That's right. Moving on to the next one. Knicks won five of the last seven and are playing better basketball of late. Will this team be a team that can actually contend next season? They're going to finish in the bottom four or five of the East next year, but there is a little silver lining. Plead the Knicks case on why they don't need to blow it up to contend next year. So I don't think they need to fully blow it up. I think that the team has good pieces right now, and I think that they had some questionable decisions to start the season that have led them to the point where they're at. So I don't think that they need to blow it up. The first thing they need to do in the offseason is trade Kemba Walker. Uh, Kemba Walker, they signed him for a two-year, $20 million deal, brought the New York guy home, and then he fell out of favor with Tibbs immediately and it was not in the rotation. So very questionable decision, but I think Kemba at a 10-year expiring, $10 million expiring contract, it will be very uh, palatable and appealing for teams that are in contention that may not have made it this year. He's could be a good six man off the bench and could provide teams a good spark as the backup point guard option. I think the other thing they need to think about is do we let Tibbs go? Obviously Tibbs got a lot out of that team last year, had a lot of uh, great effort plays by that team on defense last year and brought the best out of these young guys. But Tibbs this year seemingly didn't have that same sort of motivational push. And I think you've seen some of the same when he's been at other stops, when he was with the Timberwolves, it seemed like, and then they first started, he got some good, minutes and some good effort out of cat and that group and then as time went on his methodology wore on teams and with the bulls it was kind of the same thing and so with tibbs it's a question mark of do you continue down this path and hope that he's able to get his mojo back with his team or do you find a younger offensive minded <coughs> coach who is going to bring the best out of the players that they have and i think that might be the direction that they need to head and that'll be a question for leon rose and the ownership group but if you look at Julius Randle, who I think a lot of people will blame for the Knicks collapse as of late, if you look at his stat line over the season, he's not that far off from last season. His overall field goal percentage is down. That's probably the biggest glaring difference of 45.6 to 41.3, but it really is driven by fewer three-point attempts made. He made 2.3 on average last season and is now making 1.7 but the same amount of three-point attempts. So his three-point percentage went down from 41% to 31%. Is that him having bad shot selection? Maybe, but it also might be because they're not spacing the floor well enough as a whole, which is then causing him to take poorer three-point shots, which then leads to a lower three-point percentage. But if you look at the rest of his stat line, his uh, free throw attempts are about the same, maybe a, a hair less. His overall rebounding numbers are very similar. He's averaging actually more offensive rebounds this year compared to last year, but similar rebounding total. He's averaging one fewer assist per game, but as a whole, he's only averaging four, four points less than he was last year. Um, he's averaging more points than what his stat line is for his career. So he's playing relatively similar to how he did last year, maybe a hair worse. And I think that's driven by 
poor offensive scheming and just poor offensive game planning as a whole. So pay RJ Barrett, get Julius Randle back to how he was, or if you do trade for somebody else with Julius Randle, be sure that that person is going to be an upgrade over Julius Randle. For sure, trade Kemba Walker and just think about whether you want to continue with Tibbs or bring in somebody who probably will get more out of this team going to next year. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. They do have some building blocks to work with. RJ Barrett finally starting to come around a little bit, averaging 19.9 points per game now, albeit on some pretty bad shooting percentages. But it seems like that is the story of the Knicks this year, bad shooting percentage. They don't really have an identity on offense whatsoever, which is not really surprising because Tibbs wanted this team's identity to be defense. Seemingly, since they couldn't make that happen, they decided that they weren't going to make anything happen. So I think that you're right spot on with um, the coaching change suggestion. I think that that's probably the single biggest aspect that this team is missing. They have no identity on offense. Julius Randle wants to be the offensive guy. RJ Barrett wants to be the number one guy but neither one of them seemingly are put in position to be the number one guy. It seems like they had consistently have to take bad shots. And I think that they would probably benefit from having someone that's a little bit more of a playmaker, Kemba Walker, not really known as much for his distributing. I think that, like you said, if you could get something for Kemba Walker in the way of a playmaker, even if he's not as good of an offensive player, it would probably make them overall better offensively. So um, we'll see what happens with the Knicks. They do have some positive um, news towards the end of the season. Finally, some of the young guys, Emmanuel Quickly, um, RJ Bearsman, other guys panning out. But it will remain to be seen if they actually turn it into anything. But moving on to uh, the uh, West. What, oh, wait, before you move on, the rumor, of course, that comes out is, hey, what if uh, the Knicks took on Russell Westbrook and <laughs> brought in him? as a playmaker for this team. So what do you think that would do for the Knicks and Lakers? If the Lakers were able to maybe move and get Julius Randall over there and have Randall be the centerpiece in that trade back, or um, at least be able to offload Russell to that team. And I don't really know what that would take from the Knicks side uh, or rather from the Lakers side to get Russell over to the Knicks. Yeah, see, that's the question, because at this point, it's really a matter of the Lakers have to sweeten the deal for the Knicks. The Knicks are essentially doing the Lakers a solid by taking on Russell Westbrook. So what are the Lakers going to add to make it palatable for them to take on his contract? I think that obviously it could be interesting. It can't be much worse than it is right now for these teams if they swap Russell Westbrook and Kemba Walker. But I think that there obviously has to be more in place to make it work financially. And I don't think that they would include Julius Randle in that deal because I think that even though he is having a down year by some people's estimations, as you mentioned, it's not down by that much. He still has value at 27 years old. You could still possibly get something for him. I don't think that you would send him off to the Lakers back to where he got drafted to be stuck with Russell Westbrook unless they really give you something great, which I, I, I don't know what they have to give. <laughs> so um, I guess maybe if they give you every single pick that they can offer, you maybe entertain it. But I guess if you're them, I mean, you got to think of something. There's not really um, much that the Lakers can do to pivot from their spot. So they're probably willing to take on just about anything. 
Yeah, I could see them giving up. There have been talks that they were trying to get rid of Fournier, and he has a four-year deal. So sure, Russ comes back with a monster salary, but you at least get Fournier off the books for the final two years of that deal. And maybe they trade away Derrick Rose, or obviously they can trade away Kemba Walker. Um, but I think that they do have some of those pieces to trade away and potentially get a pick or Taylor Horton Tucker or something from the Nick or from the Lakers that they turn players that they don't want to keep on the books or don't have in the rotation into potentially salvaging Russell Westbrook on that team and uh, just not having those contracts for years to come. Yeah, I get you. But um, before I move on to the West, I just have to say every time I hear Taylor Horton Tucker, I laugh a little bit inside because I have never, I don't think in my life, heard a player's name in trade rumors as much as Taylor Horton Tucker that has like no trade value. Like normally when you hear trade rumors about somebody inherently for it to make the news, like it's usually somebody that the trade would have some sort of an impact for either the team that's losing him or the team that's gaining him. But Taylor Horton Tucker is like such a non-factor. It's, it's just, I don't understand why he's in so many trade rumors as if he moves the needle at all. Like the, the only thing I think that Taylor Horton Tucker does for a trade is just add to the number at the bottom line. But I mean, after this year, I don't know. LeBron tried to rally for him and say, oh, he's an exceptional young player when he was talking all high about him around the trade deadline, trying to see if he could somehow, you know, by talking nicely about him, get his value up. But I think the secret's out on him. I think most teams know that if you're including Taylor Horton Tucker in the deal, you're basically not including anything. Well, <laughs> his salary is like the only thing the Lakers have outside of Russ, so... Yeah, I, I really do feel bad for them, but we'll see what happens. Hopefully for them, they at least make the plan so they can get a taste of what the playoffs is like this year. But moving on to the Suns, who have won eight straight. They just got Chris Paul back. They've won 12 of their last 14. Devin Booker seemingly is playing his best basketball of the year at the right time. Plead the case of the field on why the Suns are not winning it all this year. I think the only way that the field wins is if there's an injury to Devin Booker, not even Chris Paul, because Chris Paul was out until a couple games ago. And like you said, 12 of their last 14, they won. And it seems like this whole season has been a string of streaks for the Phoenix Suns. I would have to check, but I don't think that they've lost three games in a row this season, maybe not even two games in a row this season. No, they did lose two games in a row. But still, their season this year has been magical. They eclipsed 60 wins. It is an amazing season by every stretch of the imagination for the Suns, Monty Williams, Chris Paul, Devin Booker. Devin Booker should be in the top five, if not top three, MVP conversation this year. So I think that they're going to blow out whoever they're playing in the first round and sweep them. I think they have a good chance to do that in the second round as well against either the Jazz or the Mavericks, I would assume. And I think that they're going to potentially 
also bulldoze the Grizzlies or the Warriors. That would be my only question mark. And after that, I think any Eastern Conference team is going to be playing because the East is so challenging, at least a round of five, likely a round of six every single series, whereas the Suns are likely going to be fresh after beating teams in a four to five game series. So I think that it's going to be extremely difficult for any team to beat the Suns this year. The only word of caution I would have for the Suns this year is do not celebrate after the conference finals. Last year, there was way too much of a celebration after the Western Conference Finals for them winning. I think that because Chris Paul felt like he finally got over the hump and got to the finals, he felt that was the accomplishment. And because of that, I think that the Bucks were hungrier and Giannis was hungrier than the Suns were given their celebration. So I think they probably have learned their lesson this year and will be much hungrier going into the finals. So it's my only word of caution is don't wear the hats, don't wear the shirts, don't pop the bottles, wait until that final buzzer of the finals to do all of those things because the job will not be done until then. Yeah, no, this year, obviously they have to feel like it's the best chance they've ever had to win at all. If they don't get it this year, then Chris Paul's career is going to be one. That story is one of close misses. You almost got there and you just let it slip. I really hope that this year um, Chris Paul can get through and get that championship that he deserves. But I really do think that it's hard to make a case for the field because, as you said, this team, it's not a close margin. This team, if you think about just archetypes of players, like if you were looking at roles in a video game, you're like, okay, this is a shooter. This is a slasher. This is a defensive anchor, whatever the case may be, all those types of players, they have at least one of each type. They have such a balanced team from top to bottom. They have guys that complement each other in a variety of different ways. They don't have to play one style to win. They can shape shift, play different styles, depending on the opponent that they're playing. Um, and obviously they have a hall of famer, Chris Paul, who's orchestrating the show getting everyone into their spots. And like you mentioned, they haven't even needed him to win. So this is a team that this has got to be the year for them to feel like it's their best odds they've ever had. And I know they said it last year, but as good as they were last year, they're even more dominant this year. So they've got to be feeling really good about their chances, especially going into the playoff, riding a hot streak. So I think that it's going to be a really tough matchup in the first round. I disagree about them having an easy time doing it after the first round. I do think that they'll still beat teams like the Grizzlies, but um, I do expect that it's going to be a little bit more interesting than just a four-game four sweep or a five-game series. But overall, this team far and away has been the best one all year, and it hasn't been close. So congratulations to them. Yeah. Well, that's it for the show. Like us, subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcast players, rate and review us as well. Follow us on all of your favorite social media outlets. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stur. Court is adjourned. <laughs>